All right, welcome back, welcome back, guys. Uh, I've been away these past few Sundays, so it's good to be back with you. Uh, these next few weeks, we're looking at the sacraments of the church. The Church of South India is a united church made up of former Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Methodists, and Anglicans, recognizes two sacraments, along with most magisterial Protestants in the tradition of Luther and Calvin, Thomas Cranmer and Richard Hooker. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard those names before, but there's a distinction in church history between the magisterial Protestants, which is like Luther and Calvin, and the more radical Protestants, which are the Anabaptists and later on the Brethren, and we have a Brethren person here, and uh, also the Baptists later on. Uh, And so those two sacraments in our tradition that are recognized are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So today we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about baptism, and next week we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper. So first of all, what is a sacrament? Where do we get that word? Is it in the Bible? Well, if you're a word nerd like me, the English word sacrament ultimately comes from the Latin word sacramentum. So in ancient Rome, that was a word that was used to mean something like a holy oath or a holy ritual taking of an oath. Uh, So it referred to this religious rite that would occur when two parties were in court and they were promising they were going to say the truth or a soldier would dedicate himself to uh, the service of the Roman Empire, the sacramentum, holy oath. It was like this religious ritual that was used back then. Well, there was this priest, you know, the early Christians were a lot of Romans, and uh, the Bible initially was written mostly in Greek, the letters and the gospels in Greek. Uh, And there was this priest who had the good idea, maybe since Christianity is spreading in the West, I should translate it into Latin. And so when he was translating the Greek word mysterion, he used the Latin word sacramentum. So what did mysterion mean? We hear mysterion and automatically we think mystery. But in the Greek Bible, it was a word that showed up in the book of Daniel and in various places in the New Testament. And each time it refers to an action that expresses the secret purpose or counsel of God. Mysterion, an action that expresses the secret purpose or counsel of God. And so it's out of this association of meanings that the church began to use the word sacrament to refer to those symbolic actions that contain a hidden but God-ordained purpose. Now, so far, all I've said is just a fact, you know, about how we, how we came to use this word sacrament, uh, because there are a lot of folks nowadays who don't like the word sacrament. It sounds too much like a church word. They like to use other words instead, and that's fine. But I'm just telling you the history of how we came to use this word sacrament and what it means. But as soon as I go on to say more, if you're from a different church tradition, like a Catholic, like we have here, or an Orthodox, like we have here, or a Baptist, or a Brethren, or a Pentecostal, you're going to have different teachings about everything else that I'm about to say. And I'm going, to be, I'm going to try to be as fair to you and your positions as I can be according to what I understand and what I've studied. Because as a member of the CSI Church, one of my prayers and mission and calling 
is to find common ground between all the churches that confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Because I have a conviction as a member of the CSI church that one day we will be as united visibly as we already are invisibly by the power of the Spirit. Because Jesus Christ prayed to the Father in John chapter 17 that his followers would all be one. And we know that because Jesus prayed for it, we will experience it one day. But I'm speaking from the context of the Church of South India, which is a united church, again, made up of former Presbyterians, Puritans, Anglicans, and Methodists. And so our views of the sacraments, as I said, owes a lot to Luther and Calvin, to Cranmer and Hooker, to Owen and John Wesley, and their exposition of the Bible. And needless to say, I firmly believe that they are biblically correct on the sacraments, and that they also offer a path for Baptists and Catholics, Pentecostals and Orthodox to one day be united in their understanding of the sacraments as well. So what's the view? What's our view of sacraments? The sacraments are an outward visible sign of a hidden inward grace that we receive by faith. They are gifts given to us by Jesus where he has promised to present himself to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what a sacrament is. In contrast to the Baptists and Pentecostals, under our understanding of sacrament, the focus is on God's action in Christ and the Spirit, not our declaration or our obedience. So in the Baptist and Pentecostal view of sacrament or ordinance, which is what they call it sometimes instead of the word sacrament, the focus is more on our declaration or our obedience to God's command. That's what ordinance means. It's, it means command or law or rule. But in our understanding, God is actually doing something in the sacrament, and the focus is on his action, not primarily on our response, though our response is important as well. In contrast to the Catholics and Orthodox, for us, the grace of the sacrament is not automatically received just because the priest says the right prayers and does the right actions. That's what the Protestant reformers used to refer to as ex opere operato. Just because I do it, it works. That's not the way we think of it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 29, that if you eat the bread and wine unworthily, you are sinning against the body and blood of our Lord, and therefore you bring judgment upon yourself. Similarly, Peter rebukes Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. Simon is a Samaritan sorcerer who believes and he's baptized in Acts chapter 8. And yet he shows when he asks, when he tries to pay for money to get the power to convert, confer the spirit on others, he shows his heart is not right with God and this brings upon himself judgment. He was baptized unworthily. So the sacrament will always have an effect because it is Christ's presence by the power of the spirit. Those who are baptized really are united to Christ. Those who eat the bread and drink the wine really are communing with the body and blood. And yet, if it is not received with abiding faith and trust, if it's not received in love, if it's received in an unworthy manner, then Christ's presence can be damning to you. That's what those stories show. It's damning to you. It brings judgment to you. God is not mocked. These are not matters to take lightly. Okay, so that's enough of an intro on our view of the sacraments generally. Let's look at baptism specifically. Now, I'm not going to be able to answer every argument or question about baptism with my time this evening, and by all likelihood, I'm going to take up a lot of your time. Hope you're okay with that. 
because this is a big topic. And I want to be mindful of all the questions that you may have since we have so many people here right now from different church contexts. But hopefully, I will give you tonight a clear understanding of what the CSI understanding of baptism is, some biblical principles on how to think about baptism more broadly, uh, answer probably one of the main objections to the CSI understanding of baptism or practice of baptism, which is infant baptism, and end with the pastoral benefits of this understanding of baptism. So again, I'm going to say that again so that you can follow along as I talk. This is the way I've outlined this talk. I'm going to give you a summary of the CSI view of baptism. Then I'm going to give you two biblical principles over how to think about baptism as you leave from here. I'm going to answer the most common objection to the CSI practice of baptism, which is infant baptism. And I'm going to end with the pastoral benefits conferred by baptism. Conferred by baptism. All right, so let's get started. Let's start with a summary of the CSI view of baptism. And I have three points in good CSI fashion. Due to the sad division of the Church of Jesus Christ into many branches and streams, uh, we have great confusion about the biblical teaching about baptism today. And what's more, there's a lack of sympathy from different quarters for each other's positions. So, for example, if you come from a more Pentecostal tradition, you may say, and I have heard, and I'm sure some of you have heard or even believe, there are two baptisms, the baptism of the water and the baptism of the spirit. And you need both separately to access the full potential of the Christian life. You know, I've had this happen to me. Some folks have asked, brother, are you baptized? I'll say, yeah, I've been baptized. Well, have you been baptized in the spirit, though? And at that time when I was in college, I had no idea how to respond. A lot of times, uh, Pentecostals or people from a more charismatic tradition will rely on what I believe is a misinterpretation of Acts chapter 8 or Acts chapter 19 to boost their case. All right, so let's say you come from a more Baptist tradition uh, and brethren, other Anabaptist kind of traditions, if you know what that is, kind of come along with this. If you come from that kind of tradition, you say that before you are baptized, you have to attain a certain age of responsibility in order to make an authentic mature, well-reasoned confession of faith in Jesus. Now, different churches have different ages for when that age of responsibility is. Is it 6? Is it 10? Is it 13? Is it 18? Does it matter? Uh, Does it kind of depend upon the maturity of the child themselves, their IQ? You know, there are different ways of sort of sussing this out. Uh, But because of this belief in the age of responsibility, it is a scandal and an offense to baptize babies. Often, not always, but often, in this understanding, baptism doesn't actually do anything on its own in sort of a sense of conferring grace or anything like that. It's mostly a public declaration that you have already in the past placed your faith in Christ, and you do it because Jesus commanded you to get baptized once you've done that. But it's really important that it be your individual decision for Jesus nonetheless. And that's why you have to reach the age of responsibility. Does that make sense? All right. If you come from a more Catholic tradition, baptism is a powerful rite 
that washes away your sins, including your original sin, the sin you're born with, but its effect fades away very quickly as you continue to live and continue to sin. This is why if you're a Catholic, you need the continued ministry of the church to assure you through the practices of penance and confession and regular participation in the Eucharist that your sins are forgiven and you're right with God. In a way, baptism becomes regulated by the church. It is totally subject to the control of the church. The CSI view of baptism, which again is inherited from Luther and Calvin and the other magisterial Protestant reformers, differs with these three other views of baptism in three ways. First, we believe that there is only one baptism as we recite almost every Sunday in the Nicene Creed, right? One baptism. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, it's, uh, Paul writes, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's in the waters of baptism that we expect repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Spirit. All three ideas condensed in one symbolic action, the washing. And it's God washing. Now, the church never constrains or controls the Spirit of God. Like the wind, the Spirit goes wherever the Spirit wills. We don't control it. And so we have examples in Scripture of believers receiving the Spirit after baptism, like in Acts chapter 8. And we have examples of believers receiving the Spirit before baptism, like in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is meeting with the Roman soldier Cornelius. Uh, the conferral of the Spirit is God's prerogative, not ours. And yet the apostles are clear that the regular expectation is that the gift of the Spirit should be received with baptism, alongside baptism. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here again, we see the tight connection between those four concepts, right? Repentance, baptism, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first point. There's only one baptism, and in that one baptism, we expect these four gifts, repentance, forgiveness of sins, and the Spirit. Sorry, three gifts in the washing. Second, with the Reformers, Luther and Calvin, I also believe that baptism actually always does something. Baptism is not primarily about our obedience to Jesus' command to be baptized or our public confession of a faith we have already received. It is about God washing us. And in the fact that God washes us, baptism is the visible sign of our union with Christ. We who are baptized into Jesus are immersed into his life, death, and resurrection. We are forgiven our sins, we receive his spirit, and so we become heirs to the promise of new creation. And importantly, co-workers with Christ in his mission to rescue the world from destruction by entering into sacrificial love for our neighbors, for the world, for creation. This is clear in the rich symbolism of passing through the water that you find all over the Old Testament and which the apostles refer to over and over again in 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter, uh, I believe in Ephesians and Galatians. Uh, so take one example, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, 
we too may live a new life. Through the waters of baptism, we put the old humanity to death. We are liberated from sin, the law, death, and the devil. And we rise to the new humanity. We become free to follow Christ to the promised land, just like the Israelites who followed Moses as they came out of the Red Sea. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea and went forth following Moses to the promised land. In the same way, we pass through the waters of baptism and follow Christ to the new promised land. Through the waters of baptism, we commit ourselves to following Jesus as he conquers the powers and principalities who are ruining creation through their rebellion against God. But whereas the first Joshua crossed the waters of the river Jordan to use the tools of violence to subdue Canaan, the second Joshua crossed the waters of the Jordan River to use the tools of co-suffering love and martyrdom to subdue the world. Through the waters of baptism, we save ourselves from the coming wrath, God's good and righteous condemnation of all the evil and hurt spoiling the world by clinging to the ark of Christ. Just like Noah and his family clung to the ark during the great flood in Genesis so that we too are brought safely through the judgment onto the new shore, onto the new shore of a purified world. All these symbols you know, condense in this action of baptism. Through the waters of baptism, we enter into the chaotic abyss over which the Spirit of God hovers, just like it hovered before the chaos, before, before God spoke the world into creation in Genesis chapter 1. And in the same way, we're waiting for God's new recreative word to speak us into new creation out of the waters, free again to enjoy fellowship with the triune God. That's the rich symbolism of baptism. Baptism is the symbol of our union with Christ, the way the exchanging of rings in a marriage ceremony is a, is a symbol that represents the union of a man and wife as one flesh. It's not an empty symbol. It's not a bare symbol. It's not play acting. It's what's called an efficacious symbol. With the action, you accomplish the thing that the action is representing. That's why when we pass the rings to each other, we say, with this ring, I thee wed, Right? My body I give to you, all that stuff, all the vows. In the eyes of the church, that's the moment of our union, the passing of the rings. This is why baptism is not just another ritual. Baptism matters. So that's the second point. Baptism is a rich symbol of our union with Christ. This is the third point. Finally, in keeping with the Protestant reformers, baptism is not just about washing away sins from the past. And it's not just about making a public declaration in the present. It is primarily a promise, pledge, and seal regarding the future. Okay, so to unpack that to you, I'm going to have to get in the weeds. I know that, and I'm sorry. But if we really want to understand these debates, if we want to understand the CSI position on baptism, you have to be able to distinguish between these other prominent traditions. And if you're a CSI, again, you should care about what these other traditions have to say about baptism out of a conviction that because we all belong to Jesus our Lord, if we can talk to one another and follow him in obedience, we're going to be able to find creatively new common ground that will enable us to all be one as Christ desires. So if you come from a more Baptist tradition, and a lot of Pentecostals and brethren, again, take their cues from the Baptists on this, the grace signified in baptism is typically understood to be grace already received. Baptism, in this view, looks back to the event 
of the baptismal candidate's spiritual deliverance. You've already been delivered. Baptism is your declaration of the fact that you've been delivered. For the baptism, for the Baptist, excuse me, baptism is largely placed on the side of human response. You, you, you get baptized in order to be obedient to Christ, to represent your faith, to repent, to represent your self-surrender to him. And your baptism is then a visible sign of your commitment to live faithfully for him in the future. As a, but when you look at it from the standpoint of what kind of grace baptism represents from the standpoint of a Baptist, it's mostly retrospective. It's looking back to salvation that's already been completed, totally completed. That's the Baptist point of view. If you come from the Roman Catholic tradition, the grace of baptism is mostly connected to the immediate performance of the ritual. For Catholics, the grace signified in baptism was a grace received through the performance of the rite, right? So like at the moment you are baptized, that's the moment you receive the full powerful effect of God's grace. But that grace quickly loses its effect. It's kind of like getting... Uh, getting washed in a very powerful shower, all the dirt is off you. But then after you leave, you can quickly get dirty again. Uh, And so that's why it's necessary for Catholics to supplement the grace of baptism with the grace of other sacraments that are given to you by the church, like penance and the Eucharist. This is all in contrast with the Protestant reformers' view of baptism, which the CSI hold to. Uh, where the grace of baptism is mostly uh, oriented toward the future. Baptism is a promissory seal and pledge, comparable to an adoption. It's a one-time thing, but its benefits last you for an entire lifetime. And it is something that happened in the past. It's looking to your moment of faith, but it's the kind of faith that is abiding and ongoing. And the best expression of this, I think, comes from the great German reformer himself, Martin Luther. Part of what Luther was rebelling against in the medieval church was this idea of a linear model of Christian life, a progression. You get baptized and then you progress beyond your baptism into greater and greater holiness. The more obedient you are, the more penance you do, the more, uh, the more Eucharistic adoration you attend, at least in the church's eyes. Uh, That's how you progress beyond your baptism. But Luther taught that we never move beyond the point of baptism. And he connected baptism very tightly with the idea of justification and sanctification. So if you don't know, justification is our right standing with God. How do we get right with God? How are we uh, members of God's family? How are we included by God? And sanctification is our progression in Christian life. How do we mature into Christ? How do we bear fruit? That's sanctification. And Luther took a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul is talking about the great sins of the Corinthians, you know, lust, greed, that kind of thing. And then in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, Paul says this, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, justified, all three tightly packed together. See, Luther took this to mean that we never get beyond the point of our baptism. Conversion is not a past event, but a status that we persevere in by constantly returning to our baptism. 
Conversion is an ongoing reality in the Christian's life, a continual act of going back to your beginning, the, the ground of your justification. We progress in our sanctification in the degree to which we become like Jesus to the degree that we know more and more that we are saved entirely by grace, not by anything that we do, not by anything we bring, but merely because God is good and loving despite our sin and the sin of the world. And to Luther, the great evidence of our justification that we continue to return to, the great sign of our justification, the thing outside ourselves, it's not just based off my internal psychological feelings, like do I feel like God loves me? Do I not feel like God loves me? Or our works, like our evidence. Have I been nice to my wife? And therefore that is the evidence that I've been saved. It's, n- it's none of that. The great sign of our justification that we continually return to is our baptism, the symbolic action whereby God, not we ourselves, not the church, but God washed us. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. Because baptism declares death and resurrection, uh, a reality that has yet to be fully accomplished in us, we realize that that is what we always have to be returning to. Something that, it's a promise, something that has not yet been accomplished, but we are holding on to for the future. It's future-oriented. As our bodies are baptized into Christ's death, they are marked out for future participation in his resurrection, sealed with the promise of future deliverance. So as a consequence, the entirety of our existence as baptized Christians is lived in the space between the promise of new creation and the consummation of that promise at the end of time. The primary theme of Luther's teaching on justification is focused on this present tense of baptism, a reality we continually claim and live into. So we have to live from moment to moment by faith in God's promise that we are washed. Not our, again, not on our own internal feelings, not on one single moment, or experience or prayer of a past conversion, not on the good works we do that to us is evidence that we have been saved. No, we trust totally in God's promise to us in baptism that he has sealed us to him. To do otherwise is to trade the grace of baptism for a glory we build up on our own. That's Luther and also Calvin's uh, point of view. So to both Luther and Calvin, and if you want to talk about Calvin's views, because I'm sure some of you guys might be interested in that, please see me after and I can refer you to uh, the, por- the passages in the Institutes where he talks about that. But to both of them, ba- the baptismal promise is an unsinkable ship that remains in force throughout your life. It's a light that never dims. It's a light that never sputters out. However far you wander from home, no matter how lost you think you are, or how much you think you have forsaken God, you can always recall the promise, the declaration of your adoption into the household of God by standing on your baptism, by remembering that God has washed you, and therefore you are always welcome to return to your father's house. I want to be clear about something here. For the Protestant reformers, baptism doesn't confer some benefit that doesn't already belong to faith. There's no opposition in Luther and Calvin. They both believed in infant baptism. They both practiced infant baptism. There's no opposition to them between baptism and faith, as if baptism is some separate work. No, baptism is the sign God has given us by which we express our faith. It's not an entitlement. It's a seal. Baptism doesn't entitle you to the enjoyment of the covenant and its promises, but it does seal those benefits to you. 
let's think about it this way. Let's say Prince William is about to become king. When does William accede to the throne? When is he by right king? When he's, uh, it's basically when the previous king or queen dies, right? But the privileges of the monarchy, of the British monarchy, are not sealed to William until a formal coronation when he's crowned. That's when he is publicly manifested as King William. In the same way, baptism is the right that seals our adoption as members into the household of God. It is the signing of the adoption papers. It seals you as a member of the household of God. Every adoption has a necessary component where you're looking back at the moment where the child was rescued from an undesirable situation, right? And it's entirely based, the adoption is entirely based on the prior initiating love of the adoptive parents. It's nothing the adopted child really does, you know? It's based on the love of the parents to adopt the child. But the point of the adoption is entirely future-oriented. The entire point of an adoption is to establish a new relationship with the child and with the rest of the family and to, and to create a new situation of loving communion and belonging between the entire household. It's a, a failed adoption is when that doesn't happen. And adoptions can fail, and it's very tragic when that happens. But the point of an adoption is to form a new household, to expand the house, to expand the family. And therefore, the adopted child has certain responsibilities to live out the new life, privileges and status that they're given, so that one day they can receive the full inheritance from their parents that their new status as children entitles them to, as heirs. And that's what baptism is. It's the promise of our adoption into the household of God that we can have full confidence in, because it's not our doing, but God's initiating prior love. And we should always return to the promise of that baptism because it's the knowledge that we are claimed and loved by God that will allow us to walk forward boldly and sacrificially as heirs to the kingdom. So that's the CSI teaching on baptism. First, there's one baptism of water, spirit, repentance, and forgiveness. All four ideas tightly packed together in one symbolic action. Second, baptism is the rich symbol of our union with Christ, drawing in all these Old Testament images of the Exodus and Joshua leading the Israelites across the Jordan River and Noah and his family surviving the judgment of the flood and God's spirit hovering over the waters to speak creation into existence. And finally, baptism is a promissory seal of my adoption as a member of the household of God. I can walk away from it. I can forsake it the way an adopted child can walk away from his or her adopted family, but I can never undo the adoption. I can never undo my baptism. That's why I don't need to get baptized again. And I can always return to it. Baptism always has an effect like we talked about in the beginning, either the effect of blessing or the effect of judgment. Okay, so I can see on your faces there's a lot of questions you might have and yeah, come up to me after because we can talk about them. Well, I think we'll have some good conversations. Um, but I still have a lot to cover. Y'all cool with me going on or do you want me to stop here for now? Yeah. Okay, cool. We'll keep going then. What does the Bible have to say about all this? So far, we've been talking about our tradition's take on the Bible, but what does the Bible actually say? Let's look at some verses. Actually, I think the Bible says a lot, and it's relatively clear, but that kind of raises the question, if it's so clear, then why do all these different interpretations and traditions on baptism rise up? And I think there are two answers. First, a lot of people, when they come across passages about baptism that, don't, that they don't like, 
that don't jive with their tradition, um, they kind of screen them out by saying that that passage is not actually talking about baptism. And second, a lot of people are insufficiently Christocentric in their understanding of baptism. That's just me being fancy and saying they're not Christ-centered enough when they think about baptism. And that leads us to our two principles on thinking about baptism. So first principle that I'm going to leave you with that I think you should hold on to when you leave here and you have more questions about baptism. First principle, when the Bible talks about baptism, it's actually talking about baptism. Okay? And second principle, Jesus's baptism is primary. Our baptism is secondary. We are baptized into Christ. That is clear from all the New Testament letters. We are baptized into Christ. We are immersed into Christ. We participate in Christ. Our baptism is therefore a participation in his baptism. Those are the two biblical principles about baptism to always keep in mind as you leave from here and have some questions or talk about it with your friends. So let's look at that first principle. When the Bible talks about baptism, it's actually talking about baptism. Why is this so controversial? Again, main reason why many biblical passages concerning baptism are dismissed is because they create problems for different folks' systematic theology, especially for their understanding of justification by faith, election, salvation, and assurance. And yeah, I know you guys kind of are familiar with those terms. It's, they're kind of church terms, but if any of you have questions about that stuff, we can talk about it after. And so their system forces them to screen out or twist those passages. I think we actually have to start the other way around. We begin by letting the Bible set the terms of our understanding for salvation and justification and baptism and all the rest. So do I sound like a biblical fundamentalist? Good, uh, because I am a biblical fundamentalist, a Jesus-centered biblical fu- fundamentalist, which I think we all should be. When we read the Bible and we take everything it has to say seriously and we see everything that it has to say as pointing us to Christ, sometimes that means there are still tensions that we cannot immediately resolve. In those cases, I think we have to say to hell with the system that we inherited. Literally, if God is God and not some concept that I or you thought up, there are going to be places in the Bible where he confuses me where he provokes me, where he challenges me, where I have to wrestle with what he has to say to me, maybe sometimes for years, maybe until I die. And I have to wrestle and I have to submit. There's going to be stuff I don't understand or that I don't even agree with. But if I acknowledge that there is a God, that has to be true, at least in some areas, right? There has to be some area where he is right and I am wrong, where he has more understanding and I don't have it. So if we want to know what the Bible teaches, that means that there there may be some rough edges in our doctrines in church that we can't exactly make fit together neatly immediately. I think that's our problem, not the Bible's problem. It does fit together in God's eyes. We may not be granted yet the understanding to fully understand it. Uh, But the way we start is we have to let the Bible set the terms of the debate, not us and not our theological systems. All right, let me get off my soapbox here before I lose you. Uh, What verses am I talking about here that people tend to dismiss? In Romans chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, Paul says that those who have been baptized are dead and buried with Christ so that we may be sealed for new life in the resurrection. 
So let me read the verses. Verse, uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like him. You talk to some of your friends about that verse, they'll say, well, that's not about baptism. And you'll say, why? It talks about baptism. And they'll say, well, if it were about baptism, then that would blow up our understanding of justification by faith. That's the sort of stuff I mean. You screen it out in advance to protect the system instead of letting the Bible set the terms. All right, so here's another example. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, Paul writes that as many as have been baptized into Christ are clothed in Christ and belong to Christ and are therefore heirs of the promise of new creation. So let me read the actual verses. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Another example, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, by analogy with the Exodus, Paul implies that all of us who are baptized are rescued from sin when we are baptized by the Spirit and water into Christ. Just like the Israelites were baptized in the Red Sea and in the glory cloud of God into Moses. So there's an analogy here between the leadership of the, or the headship of Christ and the leadership or headship of Moses. And Paul goes on to warn that just as there were those who were baptized into Moses who did not see the promised land because they were unfaithful, so we must be careful or we can face the same fate. You talk to some of your friends and some of them will say, once saved, always saved. You can't be baptized and then fall away. That only happens when you baptize infants. That's a wrong baptism. That's why that happens. Not according to this verse. Paul is warning them here. Look, you can be baptized, but that doesn't mean your bodies won't be scattered in the wilderness if you forsake God. So let me read the actual verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 39, Peter tells his hearers at Pentecost to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here are the verses, uh, Acts 2, verses 37 to 39. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then finally, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter says basically, baptism now saves you. Let me read uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, so you hear the full context. 
So starting in verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight, persons were saved through the water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. It's the same thing here. Well, Peter's not talking about baptism here, is he? We're saved by faith, not works. And I agree, we are saved by faith. I want to be clear. I fully believe in justification by grace through faith. But God also determines the way the grace of faith is given to us, the way the gift of faith is given to us. And the symbol of our union with Christ that God has given us in his wisdom is baptism. That's what the apostles are all saying. We can choose to disbelieve these things or explain all these verses away. And that's what many traditions, unfortunately, do in order to protect their inherited systems. But that's what these texts say. They're talking about baptism. That's where we have to start. The second principle is that baptism is primarily about God's action toward us in Christ by the power of the Spirit, not about our response of faith to him. Our faith is important, it matters, but it is secondary. It is derivative. It is a response to the faithfulness of God. We are baptized into Christ. It is Christ's baptism that's primary. Our baptism is a participation in his baptism. And that means to understand our baptism, we have to understand Jesus's baptism. And to understand his baptism, we have to understand who this Jesus Christ is. And a lot of us don't do that. We don't actually turn you know, over and over again to search the Gospels to understand the story of this Jesus, uh, his identity, his vocation. Why the heck did Jesus need to be baptized anyway? So to start with, uh, I think it actually helps if we start with the references to God's Spirit in the Old Testament, which is presented to us as the mighty breath of God, which is the life of God himself, the Spirit of God, which hovers over the waters of chaos in Genesis 1, Lady Wisdom, God's handmaiden, through whom God artfully crafts the entire world in the book of Proverbs. There's a lot of good evidence that Lady Wisdom is an artful representation of the Spirit of God, God's craftsman. Uh, The pillar of fire by night and the glory cloud by day in Exodus that comes down upon the tabernacle once it's built to fill it with God's glorious presence. The same thing happens. The glory of God fills Solomon's temple in 1 Kings to fill it with light. That's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is God's creative, powerful presence. It is present in the temple. That's why it was so important to the Jews and to early Israel. And when you read the Old Testament over and over again, the Spirit is given in limited ways to certain designated people for certain specific purposes. Often for a limited time, the Spirit comes and goes. So the Spirit of God falls upon Moses. Later, the Spirit of God falls upon the uh, 72 elders Moses raises up to assist him in governing Israel. He can't handle all these, these uh, you know, often ra- uh, raucous tribes. So God pours his Spirit out upon uh, 72 elders to help Moses. And Moses gives the Spirit of God to Joshua as he lays hands upon him before Moses dies. 
The Spirit of God falls upon the judges as they rescue Israel from oppression from their neighbors. That's why the Spirit of God comes upon Samson when he does his amazing feats of strength, right? You, you can read that in the book of Judges. The Spirit of God falls upon Saul. And then the Spirit of God leaves from Saul when Saul proves himself unworthy. The Spirit of God comes upon David. And later Solomon is granted the gift of wisdom. Again, an Old Testament concept closely tied to the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes upon Bezalel when he's building the tabernacle. The Spirit of God falls upon the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, on and on. But then you see the prophets start to long, they start to realize, you know, this, this end of time, this, this glorious period of justice and healing that we're longing for, it can only happen when the Spirit of the Lord is poured up out upon all people, upon all flesh, because the hearts of the people are so hard. And Paul later on takes this in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I encourage you to read. They're some of the best portions of scripture, in my opinion. He realizes that once mankind is filled with the spirit, then God can be all in all. That's the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about how all of creation is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God. Why? Those who are filled with the Spirit, because that way the creation can experience the presence of God fully. They can be liberated from bondage to death. That's what the prophets are longing for in the Old Testament. That's what Ezekiel sees when he sees the Spirit bringing life in the valley of dry bones. You know? They want God to rend the heavens and come down in order to fill the world with his glory and make all things new. That's what Joel, the prophet Joel, sees when he sees the Spirit poured out among all peoples, your men and your women, your young girls and young boys, Jews and Gentiles. And that's what the prophet Isaiah sees all over the book of Isaiah. To take one example, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 12, verse 12, the coming son of David would show that he is the true representative of God in ruling his people because he would be the one filled with God's spirit par excellence. He would be the one supremely endowed with the spirit. This son of David would be the one who would bring about the new creation. It would be through him that the spirit would be poured out on all flesh, that God would be all in all. Later on in Isaiah, it talks about the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth as the waters covered the sea. It would be the great reconciliation between God and man. But by the time of Jesus, hundreds of years after all these prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel, none of this had happened. The Jews had been forcibly taken into exile by Babylon and returned, but they were still in occupation. So they were wondering, when would God rend the heavens and come down and show his glory and drive out evil and pour out his spirit on all peoples and bring a new creation? And it is in this context that the ministry of John the Baptist begins. Because what is John doing? He has a message, a prophetic message. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. Repent. Repent. What does repent mean? It means turn around. Look the other way. You are headed in the wrong direction. Repent. Turn around. And John was symbolically expressing the need to repent by baptizing those who came to him in the Jordan River. Because by calling the people back to Jordan, John was referring he was alluding he was hearkening back to the moment when israel first came to the jordan river under the leadership of joshua and they crossed the river together to conquer the land and drive out the canaanites and establish a new kingdom and john was saying we need to start all over again we have to start from the very beginning you need to pass through the waters of jordan again we need to stop heading in the direction we're going which is heading us which is headed towards destruction and we need to head out in this new direction of life, the direction of the promised land. And in doing this, 
John the Baptist was probably building upon some of the prophetic literature, God's promises of forgiveness and cleansing. Uh, So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. He's probably referring to passages like that that connect this new thing with the passage through water, which, again, as we talked about earlier, is, is a very rich symbol all throughout the Old Testament. Thus, John's baptism served as a sign that God was fulfilling his ancient promise and preparing his people to meet him in all his kingly power. Make way a highway for our God, right? That's what John says. But John made it clear that he himself was not the coming Messiah, for the Messiah would baptize not only with water, but also the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, with fire and the Spirit. You see, John's baptism was incomplete. It is John's baptism that Paul has to supplement in Acts chapter 19. If you're familiar with that story, we preached on it a few months ago. If you guys remember, yeah, that's good. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, of preparation, of forgiveness, getting the people to turn around, to commit to a new direction, to be forgiven and made clean. But it's incomplete because it does not carry with it the gift of the Spirit. And it's at this point in the story that we find Jesus coming to John in order to receive baptism in his own person. And here I want to quote Leslie Newbegin, a reformed missionary to India from the 1930s to the 1970s, on the moment when Jesus came to John to be baptized. So this is Leslie Newbegin writing here. To outward appearance, he was just one among the crowd of those who came to be baptized. But in truth, his coming meant something very different. They were, coming with, they, were, they were coming burdened with the sense of their sin, seeking escape from the impending judgment of God. He carried no burden of his own sin. He was seeking to be with them in honoring God his Father. They came seeking their own salvation. He came seeking the salvation of the world. But he made no distinction between himself and them. He made himself wholly one with them. He who was without sin came as a sinner among sinners to receive the baptism of repentance and forgiveness. In his love for men, he took their sins as his own. The sinless one was baptized not for his own sin, but for the sin of the world. And so if we look at uh, that passage of scripture, at least according to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Do you see what happened? The moment Jesus was baptized with water, the moment he experienced John's baptism of repentance and forgiveness, he was also baptized in the Spirit. The sign and the thing which it signified came together. The moment Jesus was baptized with water is the same moment he received the Spirit. He united those two things. Notice the Spirit did not come upon Jesus as a fire or as a mighty wind or with tongues, but as a dove. That's the poor man's sacrifice. The manifestation of the Spirit as a dove descending upon Jesus reveals that the Spirit is the one who will lead Jesus to complete his baptism by the way of poverty, by the way of the cross, by the way of sacrifice for the sin of the world. Notice also that Jesus' baptism 
include not only includes the uh, gift of the Spirit, it also includes an interpretive word from the Father. You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism is a Trinitarian baptism. These words, uh, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, they allude to various passages in the Old Testament, but particularly Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, where God is speaking of the suffering servant in whom he delights. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And this moment of baptism marks the beginning of Jesus's ministry under the sign of baptism, as the one who will fulfill Isaiah's vision of the suffering servant. That's why uh, the spirit given to Jesus in his baptism is revealed as the spirit of sacrifice, the spirit of humble service, the spirit who will lead Jesus by the way of the cross. Right after Jesus is baptized, what happens? The spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted. So there's a connection there. Our baptism is not Merely one of benefit is one, is, is one of mission. And it is a mission that drives us out to wrestle with the devil. See, Jesus' baptism at this, at this point is incomplete. He's been baptized by John. He's received the Spirit. But he has to fulfill that baptism through his death and resurrection. And before he can do that, he has to wrestle with the devil and answer the question of how he will bear God's saving purposes for the world. Because this is the point of the temptations by the devil. You may not realize that, but... That's what it is, because Jesus has just been baptized. He's received the Spirit. He's the servant that God delights in. So how is he going to fulfill the mission of the servant? That's the point of the temptations by the devil, because the devil is trying to provide different answers for how Jesus should do that. So will Jesus prove himself by miracles that dazzle people and compel their allegiance by the sheer power of his marvel, like of the marvel, of the spectacle? Will Jesus prove himself by meeting all of humankind's physical needs, by transforming rock into bread, by feeding them? Will Jesus prove himself by creating a great political movement and becoming the kind of Messiah that many of the Jews dreamed of, a new David, a conquering king who who subdues the world by the point of a sword, a better Caesar, a better Alexander the Great? These questions uh, form, these temptations are the substance of the devil's questions as Jesus wrestled with his calling alone in the desert. And in the end, Jesus answers these questions by rejecting the temptations, giving up all the things that men call power and wisdom. Instead, Jesus commits himself simply to the power of God, which is the power of love, a power that men call weakness. An understanding of baptism by the Spirit that Jesus further explains when he reads the scroll in the synagogue of Nazareth. You guys Remember that story? He opens the scroll, he reads Isaiah, he's, and he declares that he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, you know, freedom to the captives, the year of the Lord's favor. As Peter puts it in Acts, God anointed Jesus of, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil. That's in Acts chapter 10. But if you follow Jesus' story, you notice that when Jesus sent out the 12 and later the 70 during his earthly ministry, he gave them authority to heal and exercise demons, but he did not give them the spirit that he had at that point. So why didn't he give his followers the spirit yet? And Newbegin actually answers this question uh, by citing John chapter 7, verse 39, which tells us that the spirit could not yet be given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
he had not yet been exalted. And when is the moment he's exalted? It's the moment he's lifted up on the cross. Before the Spirit can be given, Jesus has to complete his baptism. He has to complete his mission, his vocation. That's the moment in which we can share in that mission. Uh, You see, the promise to pour out the Spirit upon all men could only be fulfilled when Jesus had completed his work, when the power of the devil had been broken, when the strong man was tied up. Do you guys remember that, that passage of Scripture? It's only when the strong man can be, that has been tied up, that others can come in and steal his stuff, basically plunder his house. Uh, this world is under the tyranny of the devil, and Jesus had to string up the devil by going up to the cross before his followers could come in and plunder his house in the name of God. The death and resurrection of Jesus were the necessary condition for the pouring out of the Spirit upon all men. Jesus' baptism, what I'm trying to say is Jesus' baptism is at the very center of his identity and vocation as Lord and Savior of the world. In his baptism, Jesus took the sin and sorrow of the world upon himself so that when we are baptized, we are, like Paul says in Romans chapter 6, crucified with Christ so that the, and we're buried with Christ so that we can rise to new life, so that the Spirit can reign in us. Leslie Newbegin puts it this way, the disciples could only be sharers with Jesus in the anointing of the Spirit when they, when they had been made sharers in his cross. There is no separation between cross and spirit. The sacrificial way, the way of the suffering servant is our way now. That's the way that the spirit leads us into. And that's why Peter, after all these things have taken place, when he's asked by the crowd what they have to do to be saved, tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's telling them to follow Jesus in what he has done to accept the baptism which was begun in Jordan and completed on Calvary, a baptism for the sin of the world, and to receive the anointing of the same Spirit that led Jesus to the cross. And all of us who are baptized with this baptism and receive the gift of the Spirit immediately become one fellowship. We become united to one another because we are united to Christ, who is our head. And this fellowship continues and is renewed by its devotion to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. That's later on in Acts chapter 2. Those are the marks of this true fellowship in Christ. It's baptism that marks the repentance, forgiveness, and gift of the Spirit to this new fellowship and the new kingdom cross-shaped life to which they are committed. In baptism, our entire old creation self is crucified. It dies with Jesus so that we rise by the power of the Spirit, united to Jesus in his cross-shaped, kingdom-bearing, new creation humanity. That's the gift of baptism. That's why we share and participate in Jesus' baptism. Our baptism is secondary. Okay, I know this has been a lot. Thank you for staying with me so far. But I think it's good that we've talked about this in a comprehensive way because I know everyone is coming from different perspectives and traditions, and you all have a lot of questions. But I just wanted to lay it all out here as, you, as we continue to talk about this. Uh, and this brings us to the common objection to the CSI understanding of baptism. Okay, so we're in the home stretch here, I promise. We have the objection and then we have the pastoral benefit. We'll get there. Uh, especially if you are coming from a more Baptist position, you might be thinking right now, all right, Brian, you know what? There are some things you just talked about right here 
uh, that I really like. I hear a lot of Luther. I hear a lot of Calvin. I hear a lot of scripture being woven in there. I like the emphasis on Jesus, the centering on Jesus. But how can you justify baptizing babies? That's the part I can't wrap my head around. So let me try and state that objection and tease it out a little bit uh, more formally so that we have it at least out there, stated out loud. So one objection could be infants don't have faith and you have to believe in order to be baptized. That's in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Acts chapter 8, verses 36 to 37. The eunuch says, is there anything keeping me from being baptized? Philip says, if you believe in your heart, yeah, you can be baptized. The baptism of someone who does not have faith, therefore, is neither proper nor valid. That's one objection. Second objection. Infants don't have the capacity to commit themselves to the life of the community, and so they shouldn't be baptized. Third objection. Baptizing infants creates nominal Christians, Christians in name only, and it downplays the importance of personal faith in the life of the church. Fourth objection, baptizing infants imposes a religious identity upon them from outside. We shouldn't do that. Infants should be allowed to make their own decision when they arrive at an age of independent judgment. Every person should choose Christ for himself or herself. Fifth objection, Christians are made, not born. The fact that you're born into a Christian family does not automatically make you a Christian. Sixth objection, The New Testament nowhere teaches that infants are to be baptized. As the New Testament is to be our authority for all doctrine and practice, we should not baptize infants. Arguments for infant baptism are arguments from silence. There is no prohibition on baptizing infants, but that shouldn't tell us that we should baptize infants. So those are six common objections you'll probably hear. First thing I'll say in response to these objections Uh, I want to be sensitive. I come from a tradition that baptizes babies, and I think that's good and right. But I recognize the force of these objections. They're not foolish objections. But ultimately, I'm not persuaded by any of them, and here's why. The core of the Baptist objection is that an infant can't have faith. And that's the assumption I thoroughly reject on the basis of biblical principles. And by the way, if your definition of faith means a mental capacity to reason and verbalize assent, then there are also problems with baptizing the severely mentally handicapped, autistic, etc. So let me back up here. The Baptist position starts with a particular understanding of the human person. Uh, It's a position that is inherited mainly from the Western Enlightenment. So if, if you don't know what that is, that's basically... A philosophical tradition from the 1700s and 1800s involves figures like Kant and uh, Hume and Locke and, you know, maybe Jeremy Bentham and and folks like that. It was a philosophical tradition that saw the human person as an autonomous individual, a self-made individual, a self-choosing individual, and therefore the source of his or her own values and identity. Under the Western Enlightenment, uh, you know, it's kind of thought, we choose who we want to be, right? And this understanding of the human person is very different from that of non-Western Enlightenment cultures, uh, whether outside Europe or even in Europe before the 1700s, like the earlier Greek or Roman or Celtic understandings of what a person was. So 
Within all the earlier understandings of the human person, the individual is understood, is understood in terms of their place within the community that they're embedded in, right? So for Baptists, Christian faith is primarily seen in terms of the independence of adult faith. I see all the alternatives. I weigh them all in my head, and I autonomously choose option A over option B. That is my choice. And it's true. If you take that definition of faith to the New Testament, you're not going to find any justification for infant baptism. If it's about mental capacity to reason and form assent and to choose, that version of faith will not justify infant baptism. But the problem here is that if you do that, you're engaging in what's called eisegesis. Anyone here know what eisegesis is? It's different from exegesis, right? Exegesis is uh, trying to take out from the text an interpretation. Eisegesis is reading into the text your interpretation. So what you're doing is you're substituting your Western individualistic notion of faith as maturely reasoned intellectual belief for the biblical definition of faith. And you just have no warrant for that. Because, you know... All these other cultures in human history, and the Bible, by the way, show us that our identities are not primarily of our own construction. We don't choose our families. You know, I, don't, I didn't choose to be born in Galveston, Texas. I'm glad I was, but I didn't choose it. We don't choose what language we speak. We don't choose what social status we're born into, whether we're born the son of a king or a pauper. We don't choose that. We're born into a set of, of relationships and allegiances in which we uh, have certain rights and privileges and duties thrust upon us that we have to grow into. We have to grow into roles that we never chose for ourselves. Sin in the Bible is not just our individual conscious and willful acts. It is that, but it's, it's more than that. The Bible is clear. We're responsible even for the web of sin that we're born into that we never consciously constructed, but that we benefit from nonetheless. Sins like colonialism, sins like white supremacy. There are many minorities that benefit from white supremacy. We didn't erect it, but we can benefit from it sometimes when, you know, majority culture ranks minorities according to, uh, you know, how preferable or desirable they are. We can benefit from white supremacy, and that's sinful. In the same way, Faith is about loyalty, trust, and orientation. So let's make this uh, example more concrete. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is faith is not just about your individual, individual choice. It, it, can be some, it, it can be a trust, a loyalty that you are reared in. Um, let's say tomorrow my wife, Jisha, gets pregnant, right? Please, Lord, not yet. We're not ready. But let's say it happens. Does my child have faith according to the biblical worldview? Well, I think, yeah, look, uh, my boy, because he, God willing, will be a boy. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but w my boy will be in the womb hearing his parents pray every night to their savior. Every Sunday, the rhythms of his heart will beat along with the hymns we sing. Through his connection with his mother, he will feed on the bread and wine that his mom drinks and eats in communion with her savior. He's going to be born into a family that obeys and follows King Jesus. So in that context, is he born neutral towards God? No. 
every aspect of his life revolves around thanksgiving and supplication and prayer and faith in the triune God who rescued us as a family, as a community, from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. He's not an atheist. He's certainly not a Jew or a Muslim or a, a Hindu. He's a Christian. The faith that the New Testament speaks of is not primarily a faith of individual adult believers. The faith that the New Testament is mostly focused on is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Our faith is one that anticipates and responds to and grows out of his faith. Whether my son is baptized at three months or 30, that's going to be true. He's baptized in order that he can participate, that in order that he can share in the faith of Christ that's given as a gift to us. It's Christ's faith that is primary, not ours, not my son's. We're baptized into Christ in his death and grow out of his new humanity. In the New Testament, faith is that which marks out the Christian community. But this faith is not essentially the individual faith of individual believers. It's a common participation in the faithfulness of the Messiah. It's a trust. It's a reliance on that faithfulness. Faith is primarily something that is ascribed to the community as a whole. And as individuals... You know, I I believe in individuality, sure. But as individuals, our lives grow out of communities, from the soil of the community that we're reared in, that we're embedded in. The modern world tends to present us as individuals who choose as independent adults to enter this community over that community. But that's not the way things really are. That's not the usual pattern of events. Our choices are circumscribed. Uh, They're limited. We're not born neutral. We are interdividual, belonging to a community that gives us certain values and certain roles to play is natural. Individuality, which grows out of that, is an achievement. It's a sign of maturity. The child who's born into a Christian family, at the moment he's born, is a believer, not just someone who might believe later on down the road, because they are participants, full participants, in the faithful community, and as such, should be treated as the believers that they are. Within the Old Testament, we see that this is the way God treats his people all along. And there is no division between Old Testament and New Testament in this regard. Circumcision was a seal of the righteousness of faith towards Abraham's sons. That's in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. You can read it yourself. But Abraham's sons received circumcision even as infants. They were counted as members of the faithful people before they ever came to a decision for themselves. God is, in this sense, a family friend. And as a family friend, he looks at the children of his people differently than he looks at the children of folks who are still unbelievers. He regards the children of of believers as holy, while he regards the children of unbelievers as unclean. That's in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. God is a God who says, let the little children come to me, for such as these own the kingdom, such as these, you know, the kingdom belongs to them. God does not look at people through the glasses of modern individualism. Let's let's take that off. That's why within the New Testament, we see entire households being baptized. I'm not dismissing the need for discipleship or the danger that someone may walk away from their baptism and be condemned. Let's all remember what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. Jesus says there to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. 
He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So the point here is, my child may be born a Christian with a faith that is heavily dependent on the community in which he is embedded in, in which he grows out of, in which he is nurtured. But as he grows older, his faith must mature. It must bear fruit, and it must become his own. He must be discipled to abide in Christ. Otherwise, we have Jesus' warning. The Father is the gardener who prunes every branch. The branch really is in the vine, but if it doesn't bear fruit, the Father will cast it off and it will be fit for nothing else but the fire. The church exists in a relationship of faith towards and dependence upon God. When we are baptized, we are brought into this relationship of faith and we are called to grow in it. Those baptized as infants need to mature into adult faith. Again, this makes total sense if we compare baptism to an adoption. In adoption, the initiative is taken on behalf of someone else. In the same way, God takes the initiative to claim three-month-olds and 30-year-olds and 60-year-olds alike before they can ever claim him. There are instances, there are occasions when love insists that we take the initiative on behalf of someone else. In fact, infant Baptists argued this is the whole logic of the gospel. God takes the initiative on behalf of others who are powerless to do so. In adoption, someone who is so, in adoption, the person who is adopted is delivered from a tragic situation into a beneficial situation. Baptism delivers us from the realm of Satan and brings us into God's household as sons and daughters. Christian parents ought to have their infant children baptized because they want their children to have the privileges that come to members of God's household. Adoption is an, object, is an objective fact. The child is adopted whatever he or she feels about it. Now, they can walk away from it. God's gift of adoption does not force us to... Uh, God's gift of adoption doesn't destroy our freedom. We can walk away from it. That's the warning Jesus gives in John chapter 15. We have to abide. We have to grow into our adoption. Adoption is not an end in itself. The goal of adoption is for the adopted child to share fully in the life and love of its new family. The adopted child needs to grow into a deeper appreciation of what it means to belong to the family, what its obligations are now that it belongs to the family. The adoption would actually be meaningless apart from this kind of teaching and nurturing. That's why Infant baptism has to be followed by lifelong discipleship. What would be the point of adopting a baby and then leaving him on the street? That's the same thing as baptizing a baby and then never discipling him. The focus for Baptists tends to be upon the activity of the candidate for baptism. Baptism is something that we do as a means of expressing our faith towards God. For infant Baptists, the passivity of the person baptized is a lot more prominent. Baptism is God's washing. It's not our declaration. It's mostly God's gracious action towards us 
performed by his ministers in the church. Only secondarily is it our response to him, our declaration, our public declaration. And this is true of every person being baptized, no matter what age they are. And when you understand this, you see that in a sense, every baptism is an infant baptism. Every baptism is really an infant baptism, whether you're baptized at, again, three months or 30 years old or six years old. We bring nothing. We're like little babies. The focus is on God washing us when we are weak and needy, not on our decision. So finally, I want to end with the pastoral benefits of this view of baptism. How does this understanding of baptism help me? When I reflect upon my baptism, there's a risk that everything I've said so far can seem distant and irrelevant because I can't really remember it, right? I was baptized, I think, at the age of one or two. My parents were waiting for my grandparents and my uncle and aunt from India to be present. Uh, I think I was baptized at the same time as my sister when she was a couple of months old. Uh, My only real connection to that is a picture I see on my parents' dresser of around that time. Uh, But when I see that picture, I see the faithfulness of God across generations, even if I can't necessarily remember it. I see I was committed even from you know, a young age, even from my mother's womb, God was faithful to us. Baptism is not a break in the household of God. It, it's a break with the world, that's true, because we're moved out from the kingdom that belongs to Satan. Unfortunately, the principalities and powers of this world are under the dominion of Satan. The Bible is clear about that. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but, you know, Satan is the great accuser. He is the, uh, the man of violence. He is the, the, the inciter of violence. He is the father of lies. And all powers, all people under this world who operate according to violence and accusation and rivalry and lies ultimately are serving Satan. And baptism rescues us from that. Baptism rescues us from the domination of death, from sin. And so it's a break with the world, but it's not a break in the household of God. Uh, It is, in fact, a glorious and great thing to see generation after generation of people who have been committed to and who have abided in Christ. The significance of our baptisms is not to be sought in our feelings, but in the actual objective fact that we have been baptized. This is something that has really transformed my life and has been a great benefit to me as I've uh, grown older and I've gone through, you know, as all people do, you know, cycles when you feel close to God and when you feel distant. When I'm discouraged, tempted, or afraid, I need to remind myself of my baptism. It doesn't matter what the world tells me about myself or even what I tell myself about myself. I have been baptized. God has washed me. God has sealed me. I am adopted into Christ and therefore I have been turned around. I have been forgiven. I have received the spirit. I have heard the words in Christ and through Christ. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And I rest my life. I stake my life solely on that. Not on my works, not on my feelings, not on any other kind of evidence. Solely on the action of God who loves me washed me, sanctifies me, and justifies me. So to take this back to Luther, the story said that he has a plaque, he had a plaque in his study which said, I have been baptized. Luther, if you read the story of Luther, he's a man who is plagued by doubt, 
by fear, by frustration. Increasingly, as he grew older, more and more anger as he was rejected by the church and even rejected by some of his former friends. Um, And so he would remind himself at those times when the devil was plaguing him with thoughts that he did not truly belong to God, I am baptized. It doesn't matter what I think of myself. It doesn't matter what the world tells me. I have been baptized. I have been sanctified. I have been justified. In our baptism, God forgives us our sins. He declares us to be his beloved children, and he makes us full members of his family and heirs of his kingdom. He's declared himself to be on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? At the same time, this view of baptism helps us realize that we can't take the blessings that God gave us at our baptism for granted. The new identity and relationships that we're brought into at baptism are things that have to continually be lived out by faith. It is the abiding faith that matters, the persisting faith based on our baptism. They take effort. You know, the the document that frees a slave from his master becomes meaningless if the slave keeps on returning for work every morning. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6 when he's talking about baptism. He says, your baptism sets you free from sin. You know, you're, you're like a slave who's been set free. So what, but what good is that if you keep on returning to your slavery? What benefit is your baptism to you then? God has set us free so that we can live as free people. God has declared us to be his children so that we can live as his children. Our baptisms are like gifts that have to be opened up with joy and gratitude. If we leave the gift unopened, we're actually in a worse position than those who've never been baptized at all. As we grow as Christians, we have to grow into a deeper appreciation of what God actually gave us, gave to us in our baptism. That's why baptism is not just something that happened in the past. It's something that you continually cling on to. It's the promissory seal that moves you forward into the future, the new creation that's awaiting us. It's the deposit of that new creation. We need to learn to think of ourselves differently and to live out our new identities because of our baptism into Christ. So I know this was a lot. Again, thank you for sticking with me. I want to sum up everything uh, we've gone over so far. I know we're going to have a lot of conversation after this too, so that's going to be good. Um, So here's everything that we covered briefly. First, there is one baptism of water and spirit. Second, Baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. Third, baptism is a promissory seal of our adoption as members of God's household, which means it is more future-oriented than it is past or present-oriented. Fourth, when we read the Bible about baptism, we should take the passages talking about baptism seriously and not dismiss them. Fifth, When we read the Bible about baptism, we should see Jesus' baptism as primary and our baptism as secondary and participatory. That means that upon our baptism, we are taking on Jesus' identity, vocation, and mission. Sixth, all baptisms require faith. And when you understand faith rightly, you understand that all baptisms really could be infant baptisms, really are infant baptisms. We all approach God like needy infants, no matter what age we are. And finally, seventh, baptism is a comfort that we always return to, evidence that we are pleasing to God not because of our own merits, but because he has washed us and made us lovely by sealing us to himself.